So you want to know in-depth stories about veterans of war? You've come to the right place. You've come to the right episode, right? Correct. That's right. When'd you... You all right? You relaxed? Yeah. yeah. Neck's hurting a little bit. Relax, relax, man. This what? is going to be good. I'm, I'm relaxed. Relax. There right. we go. <laughs> I like it. All right, ladies and gentlemen, you're going to really enjoy this, <laughs> this episode. We'll see you in a second. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Dustin Bass. And I'm Alan Joaquin. And we are the Sons of History, and his neck is killing him, correct? Yeah, still does. Yeah. Kind of I just want to put that, that that thing. You know, and you I know. think I need a massage. Yeah, well, you're yeah. looking at the wrong guy. All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we've got a very special guest on the show. His name is Tim K. That's as far as we're going to go. Tim K. You can check him out at thevetsproject.com. Is he related to Danny K? Danny K. Yeah. I know that. What is that? He was that old actor from the 50s, 60s, red hair, Danny very K. leftist, you know. He was oh. good buddies with uh, Humphrey Bogart so. until Humphrey Bogart felt oh, that he was yeah. double we, we talked about Maybe him last cross. week. Yeah, right. he's kind of a comedian. Yeah. 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 Real uh, funny. He was in White Christmas. That was a pretty good... Uh, was he the main guy? With Frank Sinatra? Uh, well, he, had, he had Bing Crosby in that one. I always mix White those two Crosby. up. Frank Sinatra and Bing Crosby. Yeah. But, uh, I apologize. Yeah. All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, Tim K is going to be joining us here momentarily. He is with the vet, the Veterans Project, uh, thevetsproject.com. Uh, you can check that website out. Uh, but before you do, book and movie recommendation. I shall begin. All right. So my book recommendation is a classic Korean War book. It is written actually by a native Texan, T.R. Fahrenbach, and it's called This Kind of War. So if you don't know much about the Korean War, this is a good place to start. This is, to an extent, almost a step-by-step -step of the war as T.R. Fahrenbach sort of experienced it. He also names a number of very important figures during uh, the Korean War, but it's a very powerful book. And in fact, it was one of the first Korean War books that I read while I was doing research on the Korean War for a book that I had written. It hasn't been published yet, but when it does get published, I promise, I will use that as one of my recommendations for you to go read one of mine. I'm sure I will get a free signed copy. You will get a signed copy. Okay, cool. <laughs> free? Cheap. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. All right, so my uh, movie recommendation is a movie called Platoon. Platoon? Platoon. I think I know that one. Yeah. With uh, Behringer, Sheen, and... Defoe. Defoe. Man, this is one, one of the more powerful scenes is when they're in the chopper and they're looking down at Defoe running from, from the enemy. Mm -hmm. uh, it's heart-stopping almost uh, and just incredibly tragic. But a really good movie. I believe it was an Oliver Stone It was movie, an Oliver correct? Stone movie, yeah. correct. Yes, so it was. it's a really good... One best picture. It's a really good flick. If you've yeah. never watched Platoon, that's one of the war movies that you... you you more or less need to put on your list to watch. So you know there were some uh, vets who said that that was a very realistic movie in terms of uh, like when Charlie Sheen was in the uh, out on patrol that first night and the bugs were biting him and he was you know like sitting yeah and you could just it was just dark and you know pretty 
pretty good movie, powerful movie. Yeah. Yeah, especially the ending. Wow. Yeah. That that haunted me. And here I am. Yeah. All by my lonesome. Is that in the movie? Remember, Berenger is like sort of challenging Shane to a, to like a fight. Like, hey, you want to kill me? Let's, yeah, yeah, let's yeah, 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 yes, yes, yeah. yes, yes. So. But I haven't seen it in a while. No, it's I can been a long see, time I can since quote, I've seen it too. I can quote Full Metal Jacket. Yeah, but uh, well, let's not. Yeah. <laughs> All right, ladies and gentlemen, that's my book and movie recommendation. I will pass it on to my good friend Alvin. Theodore. Okay, Thank now you. the book. Is called. It's not a very well-known book, but this came as a recommendation from Dr. Joe Wolverton. Uh, it is called The Commonwealth of Oceania. Now, the Founding Fathers read this book. It came out in 1656 uh, between the two Charleses. Uh, Oliver Cromwell was in charge at the time. Uh, at first he was against it, but then it was dedicated to him, so... Uh, but, it, you know, it's about, uh, uh, like, a republic and constitution and how things should be. Again, this was written uh, between Charles I and Charles II. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, good book. Well, Again, if, the, if Joe's, if Joe's going to be recommending it, Joe's then it's definitely one to walk yeah. Joe's kind of like the lady in, uh, or the tiger, you know. You just follow his lead. He, he, he will not steer you wrong. The lady or the tiger. Yeah, have you heard of that one? Mm -mm. You should look that up. The lady... Or the tiger, where the guy was like, whatever the princess said, oh, okay. Yeah. Hopefully, you know, I won't get eaten by a tiger if I follow, you know, Joe. But uh, yeah, hopefully yeah. not. Yeah. So, but no, but he did say that, you know, the founding fathers did read this book. And it was, you know, important book to read. Huh. Anywho, okay. I'll put that on my list. Then. Yeah. The Commonwealth of Oceania. Uh, it is by James Harrington. Look it up. Okay. All right. Now, for movie, it's a Stanley Kubrick movie. This one came out about 301 years. Ago? No, after. Oh. After. Uh, Oceana? Yeah. This came out in 1957. You couldn't have said it came out about 300 years? No, I had to Instead, say you said it had to come about 301? There's no about 301. Well, yes, because... About what, is an approximation. What if the book 301 came out, is a specific. I don't know when the book and the movies were released during the time. Why don't you just say 300? Also a good movie. 301 years, if you look at it from a calendar perspective. Okay, Julian? Paths of Glory. Uh -huh. Paths of Glory. Stanley Kubrick movie uh, has Kirk Douglas. And uh, it has... Uh, I really didn't know too many people. The two other people that I knew, uh, if you watched The Six Million Dollar Man or The Bionic Woman back in the 70s, uh, Richard Anderson, who played Oscar Goldman, he's in that movie. Um, and then another from another Stanley Kubrick movie, I don't know if you saw The Shining. Mm -hmm. You remember The Bartender? Yeah. Yeah, that kind of creepy looking dude. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's in it too. But the rest of the people, you're really not going to know who the hell they are. They're yeah. like, I don't who is this? It's uh, set in World War One. It's um, they're they're French soldiers, and they're uh, many of his uh, Kirk Douglas's men are accused of cowardice in the face of battle, and uh, you know his his uh, job was to defend three guys that were they they had to randomly pick three people. So, hmm. so very wow. good movie. Um, highly highly recommend it. Okay. So. All right, well, ladies and gentlemen, that is the book and movie recommendation. And without further ado, we are going to bring on Tim K of The Veterans Project. Tim, what's up, man? How you doing? Doing well, man. It's a privilege to be on with you guys. And uh, I know, speaking uh, myself, 
history, obviously, is such a fascinating subject that I grew up with. My parents having raised me uh, very much to always be studying history and respecting history, uh, because obviously, if we don't uh, keep that focus and maintain that understanding, then uh, we're doomed to repeat it. So uh, it's very important. History is very important to me. So I appreciate you guys bringing some of these narratives and perspectives to light. Yeah, man, uh, definitely. And, you know, we, we, you and I had a conversation just the other night on the Instagram show. Um, and I, as I, as I foresaw that it would, um, especially once we started going, that it was going to be a pretty thorough and long conversation. Um, enjoyed it thoroughly. Um, and, and it gave me sort of insight into not just, okay, here's what the Veterans Project is, is doing, but from, from you directly, the heart behind what the Veterans Project is all about. So for our, for our viewers and our listeners, what is the Veterans Project all about? So the Veterans Project is a black and white cumulative essay where I follow veterans around from all wars, uh, World War II, Iraq, Afghanistan, Vietnam, Korea, um, and I follow all allied veterans. So we're not just telling the story of the American veteran. It's important that we get the perspectives of the other allied forces. So British, Australian, uh, French Foreign Legion, uh, Polish Grom, doesn't matter. Uh, our, our idea is that this is an allied cause, which it is. And uh, I don't feel like there's enough respect for that in this country uh, because I kind of feel like the British narrative, especially in the early of days of Afghanistan of Helmand province, you know, when they were running and gunning out there before any American forces besides special operations uh, were down there, they were running and gunning before the United States Marines. I think it's important uh, for us to share that essay because uh, the UK did not have to get involved. Uh, that was not their war. Uh, so for them to step in and for Australia to step in as an allied force and uh, you know, some of those countries didn't offer much in the way of NATO as far as uh, troop strength went, but it doesn't matter if one soldier came over and uh, fought alongside us, then that's an ally and we need to show respect for that. So uh, I wanted to share all perspectives, especially because the UK, the British and the Australians don't get a lot of love in their own countries. Um, and so it was a big thing for me to be able to tell the stories. And, that, and that's not, you know, Republican or Democrat perspective, uh, liberal conservative perspective, it's just the truth. Any UK veteran would tell you that back in their country, they're not very well respected. It's kind of like, well, you chose to do this, that's what you do, stiff upper lip and move on. So uh, for us, it's important that we tell the stories of all allied forces. And that's what the Veterans Project is. So you do, and, and you touched uh, you touched it just for a split second, but it's black and white photos. Why Why is it that they're black and white photos? So this whole idea kind of came to me, and I, I told the backstory on a lie, but I'll share it for this audience as well. So I started, I was in the middle of my master's degree in emerging media and communication. I went over to Iraq. I was in the Texas National Guard. I served with my infantry unit in Iraq in 09 uh, through 10. Uh, I was actually deployed right in the middle of my college baseball career. So pretty interesting uh, pretty interesting way to get shaken out of your career in college. Uh, and then you're in, you know, you're standing in Iraq when everybody else is getting into their fall and spring semester. So it was a strange departure for sure. But I understood when I signed on the dotted line in 2005 at 17 years old uh, that we were in the height of the surge and there was 
a very good chance of being killed or wounded. That was the reality at 17 years old. I knew a lot of guys. I think it was something like um, on the 88 Mike side, like truck drivers, one in five of those guys were getting hit uh, overseas at the time. I mean, it was a pretty, uh, there were a lot of guys in 05 that were getting killed and wounded. So um, I th- and in fact, I think it was around 110, around 120 a month. Uh, but anyways, that's besides the point. 17 years old, joined, uh, and then get deployed uh, right around 21 or 22 in the middle of my college career. Uh, came back, finished my degree, finished my college baseball career. Ironically enough, as the closer on the baseball team, I guess it can handle pressure a little bit better by then. Um, and so then I come back, I get into my master's degree in emerging media communication. It was a pilot program at University of Texas at Dallas, which is a very big technology school. Um, in fact, UTD has more Google programmers than Stanford does. Uh, it's a great technology school. In fact, it's a system school that kind of feeds into Texas Instruments, which is right next door. Um, so there's a lot of very tech technology savvy people there. And so emerging meeting communication, basically a master's in social media, uh, that was a good focus for me because everyone was hiring social media managers. And I just got the feeling about halfway through my master's degree, I got the feeling, oh no, I'm about to be chained to a desk. And that thought to me was the scariest thing in the world. Uh, it's not scary to some and that's fine. If you like the nine to five, that's great. But I felt like that wasn't for what I was meant for. And so I picked up a camera for the first time. I had never really gotten into still photography, but I felt like I'd be pretty good at it. Uh, I did have a background in some directing and producing in college during my bachelor's. So I kind of came into photography right around the same time that I came into the Veterans Project. Uh, my professor, Marilyn Walgore, who was a Vietnam War protester, in fact, a leader of Vietnam War protests, called me into her office one day and she starts telling me all these really awful stories about how she treated the guys when they came back home, uh, her and her friends. And she told me these stories and I'm, you know, getting, I'm getting enraged. Like I'm turning, you know, blood red mad. Like, you know, like, why is she telling me this story? And in the middle of it, she says, Tim, I feel like I have a chance to redeem myself, and I feel like I have a chance to give you something very special, something that you'll thank me long down the line for. And interestingly enough, that was the foundation of the Veterans Project. She thought that I should tell veteran stories. Uh, she, she noticed that I had a quickly budding talent in photography, and she felt that black and white was the medium. We both kind of subscribed to the Ansel Adams school of thought that character really showed well through uh, just the individual. And when you gain perspective with context in color photography, there's a lot of distractions, right? Uh, but in portraiture, uh, you don't want a lot of distractions when you're focusing on the story. So for us, black and white was really the way to break through the context of the image and get down to the human being. Um, and, and that's what this is. This is human storytelling. I didn't get into it because I wanted to tell veteran stories because when she first told me about it, I thought, Oh, no, like, I'm getting pigeonholed. She only thinks that I'm talented enough to tell a niche, tell a niche's story, and that's it. And in fact, I kind of wanted to run away from that. But I didn't realize she was giving me my greatest gift. And it was really those first four stories uh, that I did on Carter Chick, Jason Stevens, uh, Joe Washam, and then uh, the fourth one escapes me. I believe it's Josh Mayer. There were four stories. And... 
I was just struck, struck so hard by the diversity, by the diversity in my own people group that I did not understand. For some reason, I think I had the image of the fish hook in the ball pack in, in, in the, in the ball cap and, you know, spitting dip and, you know, and like, just, you know, basically like an American redneck idea of infantry, even though I'd served, I don't know why I had that perspective, but as I really got down into understanding each of the veterans at the individual level, I realized how extremely different we all really are. Um, and it was just those first four stories that really struck me hard. And I told you I did Carter Chick's story, who's my squad leader and my greatest, uh, the greatest example of leadership that I ever saw. Uh, he had served in the Marine Corps before joining the Army. He actually did a tour of Somalia before the Battle of Mogadishu with the Marine Corps. Uh, and then he joined the Army at 19, 20 years old. So he already had a tour under his belt. He saw some pretty rough stuff in Somalia on that first tour, uh, stuff that affected him for the rest of his life. And uh, we did that project on him, and it was about a year later uh, that he took his own life. And so the realization that if I hadn't told his story, what happens? We forget. We have nothing there. I mean, there were no stories on him. There was no articles in any newspapers or periodicals. That was it. So his wife and two children were left behind um, and, and what are they left with? So if you don't tell the stories, then we forget. And in the very real example there of uh, him killing himself, there was that shock and awe and realization of, oh my gosh, I was crushed uh, by this loss, of course. You know, how could you not be crushed by the greatest example of leadership you ever seen? And then the outer shell of a warrior falls off and you see this weakened individual who didn't who couldn't find purpose or community he lost all of his purpose um and again that's a common theme i see in the veteran community upon leaving service uh, purpose is lost and so when he lost that purpose he was a shell of himself and i remember sitting in a counseling session with him because they let me sit in there to kind of listen in um and one of the things that he said that struck me really hard was like i well, i don't know what i want to do maybe I'll like go work at home depot or something or like he's like i don't know he's like i'm not good at anything else all i'm good is at killing and defending my brothers that's it that's all i'm good at that's what i was built for and so thinking that that was the only thing he's good at and then you know he got into some small arms weapons manufacturing and he was really good at that but that still just didn't do it for him and um, yeah, his wife called me up one day and just, you know, I found out pretty rough way that, you know, he'd gone out to a field, and, you know, said he was going on a hunting trip and went out to a field and shot himself. And, um, you know, and that, that was rough, but that became my driving, my burning desire, um, that edge that I needed to really propel this work in a full-time model where I knew this is all I'm going to do for the rest of my life, God willing. Like, this is all I want to do. This became the chip on my shoulder. So I go off on these trips where I have no money in the bank. My parents think I'm crazy because I have my master's degree and I'm not doing something that has any funding attached to it, right? So I'm going off on these multi-state trips where if a tire blows, I'm quite actually like screwed, right? Like I'm screwed because I have no money in my bank account. So um, I'm driving out to LA. I'm driving out to... Arizona, I'm driving, to, you know, Utah, Wyoming, 
uh, all these places, eating ramen out of the back of my car, sleeping in West Texas truck stops with 100 degree heat at night, you know, but I was so content and so happy because I felt like I was doing what I was meant to be doing. That's telling the stories of my brothers and sisters. And when you have the perspective that I do of having served in an infantry unit in combat, you understand that there's no sacrifice you can possibly make that's enough to ensure that legacy is captured properly. So for me, there's nothing that I can do that's enough for these guys and girls. It's, it's, I can give everything of myself to this uh, demographic, to this community that I know, uh, I'm gonna do it. And that's really the purpose behind the work. Well, I know, uh, I know what you're talking about uh, when you're out on the road I did uh, I did a similar trip. I uh, went to the East Coast, but I covered the uh, Revolutionary War, so I can understand. But um, one question I want to ask: Now you've covered veterans from several wars. Are they all the same? You know, the thousand yard stare, the uh, their perspective on life is is because I know you know the World War II guys. They came back and they were heroes. Korea, nobody cared. In Vietnam, they were the enemy. But how what, how was their psyche in terms of the way they looked at life, the way they looked at the war, the way they they behaved? Can you see a difference? If you didn't look at their age, if you didn't look at their faces, could you listen to them, hear them talking? Could you tell the difference between one versus the other? Uh, that all depends on the individual tours, honestly. Like uh, As I'm getting further along in this work with Iraq and Afghanistan, it started out uh, in the early days, in the earlier days of this project, uh, guys were just getting back from their third and fourth tours, and there was a, a very real discernible um, loss of purpose, I guess, and getting back and not knowing what they were doing. But now that we're seven, eight years down the road from those first projects, I'm noticing a lot of guys that are extremely motivated and just killing it in life, uh, building their own businesses, starting their own companies. I mean, and, and that might be because I'm covering a lot of successful veterans. There's certainly a lot that, you know, have had a hard time reacclimating. I mean, we see that number all the time, you know, 22 guys taking their own lives every day. But that's mostly the Vietnam veteran um, demographic and, and, and post-Vietnam, right? Because there's a lot of guilt associated, associated with guys who didn't get to go to Vietnam. Uh, they feel very guilty about not having gone. And so... Uh, it's mostly in those demographics that are that are taking their own lives. The younger guys, uh, yeah, there's certainly it's happening um, in those communities. But I think that mental health is getting a lot better because we're we're talking about it a lot more. So uh, early on, yeah, I did notice that there was definitely some loss of purpose, uh, way more so than with the World War II veterans. World War II veterans, I mean, I've never seen such confidence especially with those guys, but. They got to achieve the ultimate victory, but those guys have their own traumas because they saw combat in a way that we can't possibly even understand. I mean, there's there's no battle. I mean, the Korangal, it doesn't matter where you were at in Afghanistan or Iraq. You can't understand what combat at a World War II level is like. There's nothing that comes close to that. Vietnam, yeah, sure, but not Iraq and Afghanistan. So it's just a different... Uh, attitude and that there was really no winner, um, kind of the same thing, I guess, in in the Vietnam perspective. Vietnam, I think they kind of felt like they had lost that war because uh, there was no discernible outcome, so many lives lost, and you come back to an American public that doesn't 
care if you exist or not. And that's the that's the nicest way to put it because there are whole areas of the country that are treated that, that treated those guys terribly. I mean, we have a story of Major James Capers, who was the first black recon marine, and he came back here. Um, he's the first black recon marine officer. I told his story uh, probably about six months ago. And he came back, and when he was laid on the tarmac at Bethesda, uh, somebody jumped the gates, and he had been wounded. And so he's laying there uh, with, with like ten bullet ho bullet holes and like uh, you know a ton of shrapnel in his body, laying there. And a young guy comes up and urinates on his face. Um, and like the the amount of examples of that in Vietnam of guys being treated just in a terrifying manner is awful. So the Vietnam guys wouldn't even tell their stories to me at first. You know, they basically told me to F off and like, you know, not, not call them back. But now that I'm further along with the respect of the project and the project has gone away and they know that I served uh, overseas, that certainly helps. And so now I'm able to sit in a room with these guys more often than I was before. Uh, but yeah, there, there's varying perspectives and everybody's different. Every individual is different. If you had a good tour to Iraq, let's say, Third uh, Infantry Division. They had a good. They had some good tours to Iraq, where you know they went to Sadr City, a really bad part of Baghdad, and they kicked some major butt. And then they came back, and a lot of those guys have really positive mentalities. But then some of the units that went to the Korangal, they suffer massive losses, and they came back, and they didn't have feel like they had any real uh, victory, like there was any win for them. So they came back, and they had a lot of you know a lot of problems with suicide and suicidal ideation. So. I think it's all individualized on Iraq and Afghanistan perspective, especially. So <clears throat> we've got World War II veterans and the Korean War veterans uh, that are that are dying at a, a rapid pace where, you know, there, there aren't many left strictly because of old age. Uh, and then you, you mentioned that Vietnam and then also uh, with Iraq and Afghanistan, you've got a large amount of, of these soldiers that have seen combat committing suicide. Um, and to an extent, to me, it's like what you're doing is you're, you're gathering these stories before it's too late, before you can't gather them anymore. I mean, going all the way back to the 40s and then even to the current day because of the rate of death for varying reasons. Um, do you sort of see it as the, with the importance of what you're doing as sort of that, like I've got to almost beat death in order to capture these stories. Um, yeah, especially on the World War II side, because they're dying at a rate of, I think, 398 a day. Um, and there's something like 2.6% left on the World War II population side. Uh, so for us to be able to capture World War II perspective, it was look, it wasn't even something that I wanted to step into. I didn't feel like I had earned the respect of the World War II generation. And there are plenty of people that'll go into a room with a World War II veteran and feel like they have every right to be there. I didn't feel like I had every right to be there. Even as an infantryman, even as a guy that served in combat, I felt like those guys, I saw my grandpa's brothers, uh, they fought in the Battle of the Bulge and on Okinawa. And uh, one of the brothers was in the Battle of the Bulge and the other was on o Okinawa. And for me, I felt like, I felt like I wasn't good enough to be in a room with those guys. And so it, it took a long time. I was probably three or four years into the project before someone said, 
I think I kept getting emails about what's the veterans project perspective on World War II veterans. I said, look, their stories have been told like a lot of people are telling their stories. And then they said, yeah, but we want to hear your perspective. We want to see the veterans project cover these guys. And so I finally did my first project on a Bataan Death March veteran. Um, he was 101 years old, named Alfred Hawes, and he was, uh, for, you know, sent on the force three-day march, of course. And along the way, just horrifying things happened, right? People were being tortured to death on this route, an American GI being tortured to death, uh, driven over with trucks, shot in the back of the head, um, you know, it taken off, uh, lured off into fields where they think they're going to be able to escape and then being surrounded and tortured and shot. Uh, they would bring young Filipino women into the middle of the columns, young pregnant Filipino women, um, rip out the fetus and then eat the fetus in front of the troops to show them what they would do to even the indigenous people in those areas. And then showing them that so that they would understand uh, what they would do to them. And this is not like, well, maybe this possibly happened. This is fact, like it for sure did happen. And Alfred was there and he got to the camp and his brother was with him actually in the March and his brother died two weeks in, he starved to death. Um, and he just gave up the will to live basically. So Alfred uh, held him while he was dying. And then the Japanese forced Alfred to bury his brother in a trench of about 70 other dead GIs and they laughed and prodded him with bamboo rods the whole entire time. He was tortured every single day that he was in the camp. Um, and when he got out of the camp, he was 94 pounds. Uh, he'd spent 1,181 days in the camp. And when the bomb over Nagasaki went off, it blew him into a trench. His arm fractured in 26 places, and he wasn't administered any medical attention. So he kind of had to bring, he had to take his belt off and assemble his own type of tourniquet, which they didn't have back in the day. Uh, he had to assemble his own tourniquet, tie off his arm. And then finally, a Japanese doctor sawed it off at the shoulder. Of course, they had no anesthetics, so they just had to give him a bit to bite down on. Uh, but when he got back, he became a one-armed wildland firefighter. Uh, you know, and Alfred's story is incredible as it is. 101 years old, three weeks, three weeks after I cover him, he dies. Um, and I would say half the guys that I've covered on the World War II side have died within six months of me covering them. So that number is quickly accelerating. So it is imperative and very important, vital for us to be able to get to the World War II guys. Obviously, Korea, there just aren't as many of them. Um, we haven't told any Korea stories. Uh, there will be Korean war stories in the future. It's just, you know, with the depth of this work, man, I have 12 to 14 stories I can tell every single year uh, because of the depth. Each one is almost like a book. And so for us to be able to get to more, it's just going to take, um, we're not going to get to more. That's not the point. We're trying, we're, we're in a quality over quantity model and that's just the way it's going to be. I'll let everybody else try to race to get to every story. We're going to try to tell as many good stories as we can, um, and we're going to do 12 to 14 a year. And on the podcast side, we'll do more. You know, we'll try to get to 26, uh, one, one every two weeks. But the pursuit of this work is always going to be quality over quantity. And it's incredible quantity, man. Um, ladies and gentlemen, if, if you haven't gone yet, go to the Veterans Project, thevetsproject.com. Um, the Veterans Project on Instagram, which is where Tim and I 
uh, connected. But go to thevetsproject.com, check out the veteran stories. He's done 55 veterans so far. You're about to go on a trip, a uh, multi-state trip to do more uh, interviews of veterans. But I want to ask you this question. Um, you're, you're gathering these stories. You're giving a perspective from a veteran, yourself, a veteran's perspective of other veterans. Two things. What is it that you think that these veterans are getting out from you telling their story or them telling you your, this, their story? And what are you getting out of this process? Man, uh, that's a great question. The, you know, I was just having this discussion with our president, Blake Hanna, who's a tremendous individual. He's a civilian, actually, um, but he brings a, an incredible perspective to the work. He has a lot of respect for the military community. He's been with me the whole way, essentially, about six years. Um, Six years I've been on this road, six years I've been traveling, six years of constantly being on the road. I'm, I'm gone more than I'm home. I'm probably gone about three quarters of the year. Um, and I've devoted my life savings to this work. And I push my, and now we have sponsors and luckily we have funding help. Uh, but if it wasn't for tremendous civilians like Blake coming alongside me and helping with this work, this wouldn't be a thing. So. Uh, I have to be very thankful on the civilian side. There are patriots at home like Blake who are incredible human beings that are really helping this work. But Blake and I were having this discussion the other day and the discussion was a surrounding awareness uh, or action over awareness, right? Because I'm so sick of the word awareness. Like awareness is great, but what are we doing to actually help the problem? What are we doing about all these suicides, all these guys taking their lives? And for me, art, in its greatest intention and its greatest, at its greatest point is about action. If you can create action around art, I believe you've achieved the, the ultimate goal. So for me, that's the ultimate goal of the work. So, but I was telling him, I said, I feel like, you know, this so much of this is awareness, man. We need to create action now. And since then, we've joined on with the mental health organization that's helping out these guys and giving us resources to give the guys and now offering a portal through our website to where guys can get real time help 24 seven. Uh, so that's our action piece, which is incredible. But he said, you know, Tim, you are creating action, though. You're giving these guys something, you're giving them legacy and that's mentally healing for sure. Like the ability for you to be able to sit down and tell your story, talk with a brother in arms because I've served, I've gone overseas to Iraq with an infantry unit. I know what that's like. So you sit in the room and you're able to talk to a brother and then get that out for the world to see. There's a release in that for sure. And I don't know if this is why, but almost all the World War II veterans I've covered have died pretty quickly after telling their story. And I wonder if there's something with mental release there of feeling like I've told my story, I can move on now. And I, you know, I don't, there are psychological studies that have been done on that. I don't know the numbers, but there's definitely some data um, that behind that, that I would love to see one day because these World War II veterans, a lot of times after they tell their story, uh, they do pass on. Um, but on the, on the Iraq and Afghanistan side, I just think that it's a mental release. It's an incredible thing to be able to sit down and be able to share your life with somebody and to share it openly and know that that person's not going to present it in a biased way. I'm just going to give you exactly why well, I'm presenting it biased because I'm presenting it from their perspective. So it is biased. Yeah, right. Uh, but you're not getting anything from me. I'm not putting my own scope or take on it. I'm going to do a little bit of that in the introduction, the conclusion. 
but everything else is their words and their words exactly as they put them out. I clear the transcript with the veteran. Not one word of that goes out if it wasn't said by the veteran. And that is big for me. Uh, talk about journalistic integrity, which we're kind of lacking in this modern day culture. You know, journalistic integrity is huge for me in being able to just present the truth honestly and authentically as it is. So for these guys to be able to share their perspective and put that out there in that way, is just been incredible for me and for me on my side man it's brought a whole litany of things it's brought uh it's brought me the greatest blessing of an occupation that you could possibly have i mean i can't imagine doing anything else this is my blood my oxygen i mean this is what i want to do till my dying day uh but it's also brought on depression you know quite honestly like i've had a lot of secondary issues since starting this work, especially on the caregiver project side, where we tell the stories of the gold star families, those who've been killed in action. And we tell the white star stories, those who have taken their own lives. We tell their family stories. Um, so if you sit in a room with a mother as she, as she screams at the United States Marine Corps for taking her son. And, and, and I'm not saying like scream is in like, well, I'm exaggerating a little. I'm saying literally screams into the mic and breaks down crying seven, eight times where you have to stop the podcast in multiple moments. And I've seen that 10, 15 times now. I just, we just started the caregiver project a few years ago. That has brought some of my hardest, darkest days for sure. Uh, because who wants to sit, who wants to go back into that environment? Like you lose friends overseas, but no guy really wants to go and talk to the parents again and again and again. That's tough. Um, or the mother, the father, the wife, the husband. Uh, so for us to be able to sit down in that room, it's, it's an incredible experience, but it's also easily the toughest thing I've ever done in my life. For sure. Uh, yeah. We uh we were lucky and fortunate enough to have interviewed uh, Dick Cole, the uh, last surviving Doolittle Raider, and um, awesome. I I completely I completely understand what you're saying. I I didn't feel like I was worthy to even have a chat with him in the same room. I was completely honored to, and he passed away three months after that. And, and, you know it it was really rough because you know you look at his photos. From the you 40s. Know the reason that he's not with us anymore. Thank you very much. Well, <laughs> hey, least, we, least we can do, man. <laughs> hey, he told me to interview him. <laughs> it was his idea. <laughs> it was his idea. But uh, it, it, you know, the the thing that struck me is that you look at the photos of them back in the 40s, and you know they they are in shape. They're they're young. They're you know, and now you look at them, and you know the the he could barely get up he needed assistance from myself and from his daughter just to help him stand up and, and he couldn't stand up straight and it's it kind of sickened me a bit because i hate to see this uh this greatest generation going like this but at least we're getting you know i i credit you for getting their stories um rishi sharma i'm sure you, uh, you're familiar with rishi sharma um he uh, he goes around and does the same thing. He interviews people, and you know I I know for myself, speaking for myself, and I'm sure for Dustin that you know we are grateful for for men like you who go around and get their stories before they pass, because they have incredible stories. So what's uh, what, so out, out of all of them, what would you say struck you the most 
or was your favorite or the one that just comes to mind the most? As far as World War II goes or any of them? Um, either one. Okay. Uh, whew, that's a tough one. I mean, you know, with the older guys, I've been do I've been covering the older guys for about four years now. Um, and total six years, uh, six is almost seven years now. Um, but I think, man, there's so many great ones, whether it's Woody Williams, one of the last two surviving medal of honor recipients from world war II. Um, look, this guy's had battleships named after him. I mean, you know, he's like, Woody Williams is a stud. He's an incredible, uh, Sam Lombardo, who was, uh, from Italy, who survived under Mussolini's rule, rule until he was 12 years old, was able to escape on a visa to America and then became a citizen, uh, and then fought as a lieutenant against the same forces that he grew up under. Uh, that was an incredible project. He was an honorary Super Bowl captain last year. Uh, that man's incredible. He's like, he's 101 years old and he looks like he's like 70. You want to talk about guys that are still in good shape. Uh, Blake and I were following him around his Fort Walton Beach retirement home, and he was like literally laughing at us. He was like, Keep up, gentlemen, keep up. And I mean, so some of these guys just blow me away. Uh, Woody Williams is incredible, Sam Lombardo, Alfred Hawes, Baton Death March veteran, but probably my most recent story uh, on. Uh, Major Jim Capers, who, if you see the motivational posters from the 70s and 80s, uh, Ask a Marine. There's a, a, a black officer staring into the camera, and that is Jim Capers. Jim Capers was the Marine Corps' recruiting campaign in the in the 70s and 80s. He was really the most, uh, at least on the officer side, the the they they went out to this one of those high-powered New York ad agencies, spent millions of dollars on this ad campaign, and so Jim Capers. Uh, is an incredible story because of what he dealt with before joining the Marine Corps. Uh, all the, all of the horrific racism that he dealt with. His parents were sharecroppers. Um, he had, he was, I mean, he was tackled and beat up in alleys. Uh, twice guys attempted to lynch him, um, like just treated horrifically. And this guy joins the Marine Corps because he sees that as the way out. Um, and then he's now been denied for the Medal of Honor three or four times after his last mission and where which he was wounded 19 times. He stayed on the LZ three times while his guys went back up. Uh, some accounts say that he killed 95 uh, in VA um, and he was shot. 10 times, I believe. I mean, he almost died from his wounds. This is a guy who stayed on, who, whose Medal of Honor commendation uh, or, or, or his, you know, push for that anyways, uh, if you saw what he did on that day, you go, this is one of the craziest things I've ever read in my life. Um, almost like Roy Benavidez style, which, you know, he knew Roy. Um, this is a guy who was giving Charles Beckwith uh, a lesson on how to start special operations unit when he was coming over to his house on Sunday night and asking him how to start up what now is Delta Force or CAG. Um, Charles Beckwith was coming over to his house to get his perspective on how special operations unit should be started. Uh, Jim Capers is the grandfather of Marine Corps special operations um, and just an incredible man. First Marine Corps special operations um, 
Marine to be inducted into the Special Operations Hall of Fame uh, down in Tampa. So that was an incredible story. And then getting back and having guys not salute him because they didn't believe that an officer could be black. Like, you know, like that was not even in their frame of mind. Uh, Being denied entry into the officer's club to where white officers had to lead him into the officer's club to get him in. Um, and this happened over after Vietnam over a 15, 20 year period where he constantly got spit on and mistreated. And he just kept serving until he reached the rank of major. Um, he was eventually going to get offered his own regiment, but he had a special needs son who had Down syndrome and was blind, um, his only son. And he felt that he needed to go home and be with his son. And uh, it was about five years after that, that his son died in his arms. And then his wife, a couple years later, died of cancer. So uh, that man has experienced pain and heartbreak on a catastrophic level uh, that nobody nowadays can really understand. I mean, in this American culture, at least. You know, uh, what are some of the things you're you're capturing these these stories and i think on on their face like people were seeing as as we talked about the the other night like you were talking to some of the most elite veterans these guys they saw combat these are special forces uh even in, even navy seals um these are guys that are incredibly deadly um or at least in their time they were incredibly deadly and so on the, on its face you people may think that okay we're going to get some uh, combat stories, um, and, and stories about, you know, how they survived or, you know, what all happened during a firefight. But what is it ultimately, because when I, when I read these stories and it's sort of like what, you know, Major James Capers, his story, I'm seeing something so much more deep than surviving a firefight or being involved in a firefight. This is, one of these, how much weight can the human spirit bear and keep moving forward? Is that sort of one of the one of the things that you're you're going for to capture, or or is it just like it's going to happen anyways when people read these stories? This is what's going to come out. Yeah, I mean, in the early days of the project, so I was I was kind of had this preconceived list or idea of what the questions were going to be, and what I found is that kind of shaped the identity of the work in a way that I did not like. Um, so imagine going in a room and you've got like 15 or 20 questions that you've kind of already thought out, but you don't know this guy or girl very well. And that's just not a way, good way to interview someone. But you've got to remember that I was growing as a journalist. I was growing as a photographer. I mean, before this work, I still see pictures from my early project where I'm like, oh, my focus should have been set to F4. And it was for sure set to F2.2. Like, you know, there's no, you know, the depth of field is awful on that photo. Uh, we're like, the face is out of focus. There's just something so um, amateur level that like nowadays I would be horrified if I saw this image coming out of my camera. Uh, but, you know, back in the day, I was learning how to be a journalist. I was learning how to be a photographer. So I had this preconceived idea of who these guys were and I was kind of taking it into the interviews. But now as I developed the process of the work, I let it be what it is, man. I'm hanging out with my brothers. I know these guys. I step in the room with them and I'm comfortable from the jump. I don't take a first, I don't take a first photo with probably in the first three, four hours that I'm talking to the guy. I'm just hanging out. I'm spending the day with them. So I make that very clear. Um, 
I, I remember I was up in Montana and I was hanging out with these guys who started this incredible organization called Heroes and Horses. And uh, my friends, Micah Fink and Chris Bova, Micah Fink started this organization and Heroes and Horses is an incredible group. They take guys on 41 day backpacking trips up into the mountains of Montana, uh, where these guys are forced to reckon with themselves. They're forced to understand themselves, themselves on a deeper level. These are guys who are coming off of, you know, addictions, horrible addictions to black tar heroin and you know opiates and va medication that where they were over prescribed at a level that you and i can't possibly even comprehend and he's taking these guys off on these backpacking trips anyways i went off to do a story on these guys they've had you know yeti make videos on them i mean their stuff is beautiful so we're in the middle of the day and mike is staring at me and he's like man this has been an awesome day but when are we going to start the project and i'm like we already started, buddy. We started this morning. <laughs> like he, he was like so comfortable that he didn't realize like, this is the journalistic process. I'd already been taking pictures. I'd already been asking questions and I'd already been developing the work very early on. So I'm hanging out with my bros. I'm spending real quality time with guys that I love. Some of the guys at the premier top levels of the military, but guys who I know and understand, um, and I didn't operate on that level, but I can at least come into the same space and have these same cordial conversations where we get and understand each other right away. So I think that's huge in the process of it. There was no, there's no preconceived list or notion of what it's going to be anymore. Um, and so now developing the idea goes as I get more and more time. So sometimes I'll spend four, five, six, seven. I once spent two weeks with a guy. Uh, doing his story. So it's really like how much time that veteran is willing to give. I always tell him, as long as you're willing to have me, um, I'll come out and photograph your life. So, and obviously the more that is going on in their life, the more rich the images are going to be. Yeah. But with the World War II guys, sometimes it's relegated to be in a room for a day or two um, and just photographing them at different angles or awards of what they've received. And then maybe to get them outside for a little bit. Uh, but Iraq and Afghanistan, I mean, these guys are doing some incredible things. So the photos kind of take care of themselves because I'm just living the experience that they are. Yeah. How much has this the COVID uh, affected your work, especially with the older, older guys? Older guys a lot. Uh, with the younger guys, not so much. Not at all, hardly. Um, in fact, I think last year was probably 2020 was our not only our best year funding wise like we came alongside this partner organization called heart support which is i'd love to talk about because they're incredible they were started by the lead singer of this band called august burns red which is a really big metal band a very heavily successful metal band this lead singer of this band started this mental health organization because he saw a lot of young kids being affected out there on the tour circuits you know there was a lot of suicide and suicidal ideations uh metal is a tough genre and you meet a lot of people who have suffered tremendously, had bad parenting, grown up in rough homes. Um, and so he was really affected by these kids they saw in the crowds. And so he started this organization that is offering real mental health assistance and resources to people. And so the Veterans Project has become the veterans wing of heart support and what they're doing. Uh, they invited us along. Uh, as a part of the veterans perspective, because we give them access to veterans, um, you know, Medal of Honor recipients, all the guys that I know, our network is tremendous. Um, so they're able to get access to all these veterans that they wanted access to that they didn't know. 
um, and then we're able to offer them, um, then we're able to give mental health resources and assistance through the website, through heart support. So that's been tremendous. Um, but what was the question again? I kind of went off on a tangent and then. I don't know. It was about. It's just about the COVID. The COVID, yeah. Like how that's. Yeah, the COVID. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, uh, yeah, the COVID thing. Like, I do that with this work. You recognize I'm pretty passionate about it. So, if I get off on a tangent, steer me right back on and I'll get to it. But, um, the for for COVID, uh, last year was really our. We had. They, they did a fundraiser for us that was highly successful. Um, and we've been doing a lot with sponsorships. And then. A lot of trips just one-on-one. -on -one. If I'm one-on-one -on -one with the guys, I mean, there's really not going to be much of a risk that we're taking. And of course, I go into it talking with them first and saying, hey, look, if you are, you know, you don't want me around, you don't want me to come out here, we can always put off the trip until we can do it again. Um, and I've literally had no guys say that they didn't want me to come out. So I've come out, we've done the projects. Um, and like I said, I don't do very many every year. So it's called the 14. And then the rest of the year, I'm on the road, um, getting podcasts, capturing other aspects of the work. So uh, it's been pretty easy with the younger guys. They're all pretty healthy, too, and they're in very good shape. So obviously, there has, of course, you know, it's brought limitations in certain ways. But honestly, last year was our best year. So tell me about the, um, the foreign soldiers and... Number one, our allies, but also, have you ever had an opportunity to interview someone who was once our enemy? Uh, no, I have had the opportunity. It got brought up to me. There was actually a guy living in Utah who had been a part of the uh, Nazi party, and he was willing to talk. And uh, that was I, I talked it over with a few different people, and it's not that there's no system of forgiveness. Um, it's just that that's not really the goal of this work. Uh, the goal of this work is the allied side. So um, it was tempting. It was tempting. I knew where he was living in Utah and I had no, and I wanted to talk to him myself and I'm sure we would have gotten along just fine. But yeah, it's a weird thing for the Veterans Project because it is an allied project. Uh, so I did not do that, but I have talked to some of the older fighters from other countries. So we did do a project on a French uh, resistance fighter, um, Jean-Paul, and he actually lives in Florida now. He moved over here probably about 40 years ago or so, but uh, he, uh, his dad was a hairstylist. Of Everybody. course, he's from France, dad's a hairstylist, right? Um, so he grew up in Paris. And uh, he got captured uh, by German forces who were taking him off to a concentration camp and in almost a movie script style jumps off of the moving train, uh, you know, gets, you know, German machine guns aimed at him, shot at, he was able to escape at 15 years old in the French underground and then he becomes a resistance fighter, uh, blown up tanks. Uh, slitting guys' throats. He was mostly a courier, but he was also killing guys for sure at six, 15, 16 years old. You know, sneak attacks, ambushes, blown up Nazi supply depots. I mean, he had an incredible story. And so that was a really awesome project. Um, and I presented him with a veterans project uh, shirt and I was going to make it out in the French in the color France colors and I sent it to him he's like I want an American shirt are you kidding me like <laughs> like he was so grateful for us and then the last battle of 
one of the last battles of World War II, there were catastrophic casualties. I can't remember. It started with an M, but it was a it was a battle where the French resistance was involved, and it was a massive battle. Um, and anyways, he fought um, alongside the 75th Ranger Regiment. Uh, they actually had to go through Ranger training before the battle, and so they were forced kind of through a quick pipeline of Ranger training. And then, he, so he was fighting along the 75th um, in World War II in that last battle. And he survived and he came back uh, to France and was a hairdresser himself for, for a long time. Um, yeah, became a hairdresser, just like his dad. And then uh, the Navy knew that he had a very special set of skills, uh, which he spoke French and he spoke Arabic very fluently. So he got accepted into some Navy pipeline, super secret stuff that he couldn't even talk about now, um, which is wild because a lot of that stuff is declassified by now. But there was stuff that's still classified on the books about some of those French resistance fighters that moved to America. And uh, he was a part of that pipeline. Um, and he, uh, he worked for the Navy for the Special Warfare Department for like, I think it was like 30 years or so. So um, yeah, he couldn't talk too much in detail about that, but the stories he had were pretty incredible. And he sent some amazing photos of him as a kid with his parents, you know, dressed in the usual French way and like the, uh, in front of the Eiffel Tower and just like, like such, you know, stuff that even on the American side, I had, or on the French side, I had never seen before, you know, I'd seen these old pictures on the American side, but seeing it from the French perspective was pretty incredible. So one of one of my my last questions um, is getting these these soldiers to open up. Uh, there is the the typical, you know, if they've been in combat, they're not going to talk about it, and that's sort of something that people are told either growing up or if they've got family members like you know uncle so and so or grandpa so and so. They're they're just not they never talked about it. They just they're not going to talk about it. Do you find that to be true more often than not? And also with that, how, how, how difficult is it for you uh, to have them open up to you about their war stories? Um, honestly, it, it was hard in the early days. And I think it was just the humility thing, honestly, amongst the Iraq and Afghanistan guys. First of all, I did not have any reputation within this work. So then coming to guys and being like, hey, can I follow you around for the day with a camera? It's like, well, why? Like, that's weird. <laughs> you know, don't, don't ask me any questions again, weirdo. Um, you know, like, so, so it was strange in the beginning because I had no resume of work really to show. So I was denied about, not, you know, eight out of 10 times I was told, like, hey, get lost. You know, I'm not doing that. Um, and then I had those first four stories that I got. And after that, it picked up. But now the project's at a level where most people in the veteran community know about it. So it's not tough. In fact, I got to put guys on a list nowadays because, you know, we have so many stories that we're able to pick. But getting them to talk about their stories once they get in the room, absolutely not hard at all. And I think that's just the brotherhood. I've had a lot of guys tell me just flat out, you know, no offense, but if you're a civilian, I wouldn't tell you my stories. Like some of these darker, heavier stories, if you like look into some of the meat and potatoes of some of those heavy, heavy stories, there's some real rough stuff for anybody to read, stuff that I never really read about in books. And so uh, hearing some of the details of some of these actions that took place in World War II, uh, Vietnam, um, you know, Many times I'm sitting in the room and the kids who are with their father or, or you know, or their 
older brother, you know, in the case of Vietnam or World War II, will tell me, well, their, their jaws will just be dropped by the end of the interview because they're like, I thought grandpa or dad had told me everything. He definitely didn't tell me about that. And so realizing that they're talking about these things for the first time in their lives sometimes. And I think that having that veteran perspective, I'm not against civilians going and telling these stories by any means. Um, but I know that a lot of the stories that I've told on my side, they, they flat out wouldn't tell it to a civilian and they've been pretty honest about that. So it's just a perspective the thing for me from the brotherhood side where I'm able to go into the room and kind of have that shared perspective. And that's definitely helped me out a lot. So I didn't know it was as big of an issue as it was, but it's just like anything. I mean, if you're a minority in a, in a certain demographic, maybe you don't want a white guy coming in and telling your story or, you know, it's just it, the demographic understands the demographic. And so some people are going to be okay with it, but a lot in this community aren't. Yeah. How can, uh, People help. Ordinary people help. Um, I mean, I think. Is there is know, there a, think... is there a way to contribute either to yours or maybe contribute to like a, I know everyone's familiar with Wounded Warrior Project. I don't know what you feel about them, but if somebody, you know, they want to help out because you you know you're sitting talking about all these suicides per day. I mean, what can what can the ordinary person do? I mean, there's a lot. There are so many various nonprofits out there. I would say just do your research. And if it comes down to it and you want a very, um, you know, shoot me a DM, shoot our team a DM at the Veterans Project and ask us what you can do. Because there are specific organizations everywhere across this country now that are doing incredible things. Uh, you know, nonprofit organizations that are helping mental health, like Heart Support, that are tied to us, where they need more volunteer assistance on certain sides of the veterans, you know, side of uh, uh, the veterans perspective. Uh, there, there's a ton that can be done with these various nonprofits. And I really think that that's, you know, rather than adding to the pool of nonprofits, because there's a nonprofit for basically everything now in the veterans community now. And if you're in the veteran community that I'm in, I'm traveling and I'm telling these stories every day, I'm out on the road. So I'm hearing about, 20 nonprofits for one cause. And it's like, guys, why don't you just bring some of these nonprofits together and help each other out? Because right now you're really kind of, you're dividing other people up and then they're thinking one nonprofit is better than the other. And then they won't help that other nonprofit because they think one nonprofit is the leader of all these things. And in all reality, it's like, if you can, um, it's if we could get this down to a more manageable approach, you know, I'm not saying monopolized by any means because um, certain organizations, you don't want organizations to get too big, of course, because then there, you know, problems come up in the bureaucracy and the movement of the companies. But uh, for, there are so many ways to help and reach out. But I think if the nonprofits would get a little bit more fluid and would communicate a little bit more, uh, then we would have some of these less of these overlapping issues. And to be honest, man, a lot of it's the awareness problem. There are a lot of nonprofits out there that are saying that they're helping veterans mental health, but really they're just throwing money towards a cause. So they're just like kind of a, a money funnel that's funneling money to, I don't know what, um, I, more research, I guess, but um, we need more causes out there like a heart support that are actually giving assistance, right? Resources and actual activity, uh, you know, providing counseling, like, so I would just say, ask questions, you know, there, I mean, Google's helped me out a lot, you know, like, but yeah. if you want to reach out, reach out to us there at the Veterans Project, we'll be happy to point you to some organizations that'll, 
get you on the right track for sure. All right, Tim. Um, last question from me. Uh, during your baseball college career, uh, you were a closer. Did you have the cutter, or what was what was your pitch? <laughs> oh, slider for sure, man. My my slider was definitely my out pitch. So uh, try to get them down in the hole as quick as possible. Try to get that O two count as quick as possible, and then bring bringing a slider. You know that that was probably my nastiest. I did like to throw the curve too. Uh, my, my slider was just probably about seven or eight miles an hour slower than my fastball. And then my curveball was probably about 10 to 12 miles an hour slower, but my slider was definitely my out pitch for sure. Well, there you go, man. Um, all right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, this is Tim K from the veterans project. Now go to the vetsproject.com. Um, also check out the veterans project podcast. They've done numerous interviews and here's the thing here's something that i that i noticed about um your 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 project if you want to get into the mind sort of of veterans i think this is an ideal place to go because this is one of the things that that i that i noticed and then we mentioned uh the other night these stories that you're telling they're not just photos with a couple of quotes and blurbs these are extremely long and in-depth Q&A interviews that get into the mind of the veteran. And I think that you're doing just an incredibly stellar job of not just bringing out the story, but bringing out the, the art behind almost the, really the art behind the tragedy of, of, of what has happened um, and through triumph or, or, or otherwise, as we've said, like these, these soldiers walk out of these, these wars feeling differently to an extent from world war ii they came out triumphant and then just we talked about this the other night world war ii they came out sort of on top korea sort of just ignored um and then vietnam just sort of disrespected at, at, at an incredible level um and then you have sort of a going back up with uh, iraq and afghanistan um so Ladies and gentlemen, check out thevetsproject.com. These are incredibly in-depth stories, and we want to thank you for doing what you're doing, and thank you for your service, brother. We really appreciate yeah, it. Amen. Of course. I'm very glad to do it. Can I just say one more thing? Yeah. Um, I, ju I just wanted to speak really quick about on, on the idea of purpose and community because that was one topic that we really got into in depth. Uh, purpose has been the single identifiable thing in these interviews the, the 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 ability for these guys to gain perspective is so huge in this battle that we're facing with taking our own lives and a lot of the guys who i've seen from my unit who've taken their own lives and guys from other units um there was a huge study done by the new york times on 2-7 where they lost more guys to suicide than they lost in combat um, which is crazy. Like more guys, they were in Helmand province, rocking and rolling, like one of the most violent parts of Afghanistan. And they're losing more guys to taking their own lives. Um, and, and so the identifiable thing that I've seen in this demographic is that purpose is such a massive part of the healing process and the ability to get out there and get after it again, after moving on with your life is so huge. It's not just a veteran story, it's a human story. If you don't have a purpose in life, you feel like you're lost, you don't have community surrounding you, 
uh, reach out to someone. And if you don't feel like you have someone to reach out, trust me, you do. There's somebody out there who wants to hear from you. Uh, so for me, like within this work, what I've seen from the World War II veterans and why there were almost no suicides, whether we're the only examples of suicide really saw in World War II were guys taking their own lives because they couldn't serve because they weren't allowed to go overseas. Um, so like that was an honor thing, right? They felt like they had lost their honor. Uh, so they took their own life. On the World War II side, guys, the stories of guys coming back and all the trauma that they went through and coming back, there aren't very many stories of guys taking their own lives. Uh, Vietnam, there were a lot of guys that did. It's that purpose. There was no discernible victory, but then also getting back and not feeling like you had a cause to live for anymore. And you do, I promise you, you're worth it. You're important. And so to those guys out there who listen to this, you're struggling a little bit. I never I always want to get off my piece about this because it's so important to me is this is not just about awareness and telling stories. It's about action. So if you have questions, uh, don't be afraid to ask and don't be afraid to reach out to me personally, because um, I've lost buddies of mine, some of my best friends, and I still regret not talking to them that one day uh, before it happened. Uh, I'll always question myself for that. But finding purpose, finding community are two of the biggest things that you can do. Um, in order to find proper healing. And that has to be the motivation behind most of these nonprofits and their work and whatever data they're gathering. Uh, it's most important to find out why guys are losing their purpose and why they're losing that sense of community. We need to get that back uh, because we've been kicking some major butt for a very long time. And we've been forced out into these wars for a very long time. And I hate to see such respectable human beings come back and then lose that sense of purpose. You're very worth it. And it's important for me to say that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks, brother. Thank you very much. Appreciate yeah. all you do. Absolutely. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that is it for the show uh, with Tim K of the Veterans Project. Tim, thank you again very much for joining us, brother. And I hope that we will uh, catch up again soon, maybe when you get back from your multi-state trip. Uh, keep in touch, man. Man, thank you both, guys. Uh, it was awesome talking to you and uh, awesome to be able to do this. I appreciate you giving me the time. We, we appreciate everything you're doing very much. All right, ladies and gentlemen, well, we hope that you enjoyed the conversation with Tim K. If you haven't yet, go check him out at thevetsproject.com. Also, also, I don't know if you know this, but that cup, that coffee mug that you're drinking out of, yeah. I got in China. And it says, I love China. I, I, I have struggled with possibly throwing that coffee mug away, although, you know... We do love the Republic of China. Yeah, I was gonna say, how do you know this says "I love China"? I see. I I, I honestly don't know. I don't I don't speak Mandarin, or nor do I I read it. But I assume with the Chinese letters and the heart mm -hmm. that it probably says as and the fact that I thought I, that was "I love diving." So it looks like a diver with a snorkel. It might be him. Yeah, yeah. So. I love diving. Yeah, I know, but you know, hey, look, we like the Republic of China. We yes. don't like the People's Republic of China, no. but the Republic of China, people of Hong Kong, people of uh, Tibet, Macau. Did I miss anyone? I don't know. Oh, that You're one really guy. That one guy that stood that stood against the four uh, tanks. Tiananmen that, Square. Man, yeah. yeah, Tiananmen Square. Yeah. Those those Chinese. That guy was fantastic. Yeah, that that's. And we sort of have a soft place in our hearts for the guy who moved the tank. 
back and forth. Like, uh, uh, I don't want to crush yeah, the guy. I don't want to crush the guy. I don't yeah. want to crush the guy. Would you move? Yeah. All right. Well, yeah. Um, yeah, but uh, why do you have this then if you... Uh... I was in South Korea and obviously the layover was in China. So I was like, well, I'm in China. I've never been to China before. And I do collect coffee mugs. Mm-hmm. I have this Goldfinger one. Well, I didn't buy this here at a you know local place. I actually got that in London. So, you know, there were Chinese in Goldfinger. There there were. Yeah. At the end. I won't go, give it away, but... Yeah, uh, yeah don't give it know, away, because it's, you know, it's... I'm a grand, yes, it's movie. been around for, what, 67 yeah, years? a long time. Yeah, but, uh, so, all right, ladies and gentlemen, well, as we always do, we like to end on a scripture, and we also like to rethank Tim for being on the show. Uh, but the scripture, and I think it sort of has a little bit to do with what Tim was talking about with honor and brotherly love. This comes from Romans 12.10. It says, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. And I really think that that, if you could have a scripture, that may be something that could you could apply to what Tim is doing. Um, he is, it's, and he, he referenced uh, the brotherhood, you know, a number of times during the, during the yeah. interview. Yeah. And there's that, that brotherhood, that brotherly love that you have for being willing to lay down your life for your brother and your brother being willing to lay down his life for you. Don't, uh, don't look incredible. at me. No, we weren't in... Yeah. in well, we're not refer- been referencing yeah. us. I mean. No, not at all. Um, <laughs> not at all. So we aren't veterans, uh, so we don't know what it's like having uh, people shoot at us. Well, except, <laughs> yeah. well, actually, I, I was shot at one time uh, as a child. Uh, my parents and, and myself got robbed, and the oh. bullet was like pretty close to my, my face. Anyways, uh, long story short, that's the end of that story. All right, well, that is it for the show. Where can they find us? Uh, they can find us on Facebook, uh, Instagram, where you have your uh, show quite often. That's right. Uh, YouTube. Subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. We yeah. need subscribers, YouTube. Yeah. And we also have our very own website, www.thesonsofhistory.com. That's right. And we have our very first history event coming up April 17th. The tickets for those are going to come out early April, probably April 1st. So make sure that you purchase a ticket because uh, there's only going to be a limited amount. Now, if you're in the Houston area, you'll probably want to get those in-person tickets. And if you're going to be online, well, we'll have about 100 tickets available uh, so you can watch the event online. More details to come at that. But we're going to have two very special guests uh, speaking, and it's going to be freaking awesome. Yeah. You don't want to, if you're a big Texas history fan, you don't want to miss this for sure. It's going to be a lot of fun. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that is it for the show. Tim, thanks again, and thank you for everything that you're doing on the Veterans Project. We will talk to you all later. Have a great week.